The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. The commandments of men. You leave the commandment of men and hold to the, or the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolish, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's word for God's people. After observing the surgery and hearing Jesus teach, we can conclude this. The heart of the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. And when the Bible here refers to the heart, it's not meaning our internal organ that pumps blood throughout the body. No, it refers to our core. It refers to where our affections, our decisions, and our desires reside and come from. In Jesus' day, it was the bowels. That was the word that they used. Now, we think of our bowels in a different way, but they thought of the bowels as the internal core, the center, the gut, where our affections and our decision-making, our, our, our will existed. And what Jesus is here uh, teaching us is that heart those bowels that each of us has been corrupted. Our desires, our affections have all suffered from two conditions. They've suffered from every human heart, suffers from two conditions. He first teaches this first condition, a faraway heart in the first 13 verses, a faraway heart in his interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes. Now let me just back us up here for some of the context. What do we know has happened? This is a section of scripture that comes right on the heels of mind-blowing miracles. Mind-blowing miracles. Jesus has been teaching and traveling all throughout the Galilean region, really the northern part of Israel. He has just walked on water, 
displayed himself as God to his watching disciples. He has just fed thousands of hungry people. He has healed all who got close and who touched him. And now, here in chapter 7, like at the end of chapter 3, a special delegation of Pharisees and scribes are sent from Jerusalem north to investigate who's stirring up all these problems. Who has, been, who has been stirring up all the rural rabbis? You know, in Galilee, it was this, these, these small little towns, and so the synagogues that were there, and the rabbis and the, the elders and the, the uh, synagogue leaders there, he, Jesus had been causing quite a stir for many chapters, hasn't he? And so now, word has obviously gotten back to the headquarters, back in Jerusalem, and so they send the big guns. Some Pharisees, the scribes, scribes were the, the, the copyists, the commentators. A tradition begun in Ezra. A tradition really begun in a great way. They would take the, God's word and they're responsible for the transmission of, of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular that we have because they would spend hours writing out the Old Testament books of the Bible. The, the, the fragments and the pieces that we have, the copies of God's word come uh, largely from those that were scribes. The Pharisees were kind of the big guns, the religious leaders. And so they go in verse 1, chapter 7 here, and they come to see what's going on. And into their in their investigation, what do they find? What do they find here? The disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Now, if they were to come to my house many meals throughout the week, they'd probably find the same thing. Now, we teach our children to wash our hands. We wash our hands and all that but uh, they might find the same thing. But it, they're not really talking about hygienic uh, uh, violations here. What they're referring to is the ritualistic purity violations. They're talking, they had, uh, they had broken these rules, these traditions of the elders. And what's really interesting here, Leviticus 22, you can go and read it on your own later, but in Leviticus 22, there was a prescription in the Old Testament law that called for a priest to wash when they were handling the holy things in the temple. There, was a, there were rituals that were set that were symbolic of anybody coming before pure, holy God to wash themselves. The recognition that we were sin-filled, we were defiled, but we were approaching God. The rabbis, the priests had to do this. But over time, the elders, the religious leaders had extended this really to everyone and to everything. Not just priests going to handle the holy things in the tabernacle, but now everybody, especially when they're coming to meals, or they were coming out of the market, or they were in between meals or in between courses, they would have to wash their hands. And it went something like this. They would first turn their palms up, fingers up, and they would trickle, uh, pour water over their hands so that it would drip down. Then they would turn their hands down and would pour water over their hands similar to this. And then they would take uh, the water and they would use a fist to scrub their hands. I like this. And then they would turn it over, and with a fist, they would, they would scrub and would wash themselves before the meal, in between the courses, and after the meal. And as we saw in the text here, there's, there was all kinds of rituals to wash all your pots, pans, plates, silverware, and the chairs and the table which you sat at. All kinds of rules. 
So many so that you could probably walk into any one house at any one meeting and you would probably find some violation of the oodles and oodles of rituals that were impressed upon the people of that day. And there were many reasons why. There were many reasons why for all these uh, traditions that they had and, and some probably originated out of good uh, motives and many which were really just superstitious. It's really interesting, and I couldn't find uh, in my study this week exactly where it originated, but one of the reasons why they had all the washings was really born out of this superstitious belief in a fictional demon named Shibta that would uh, reside on your hands. I don't, don't necessarily know where it originated, but that's what they thought, that in the night or whatever, the uh, little demon would come and, and, uh, and sit on your hands, and then if you were eating and you were undefiled, then you'd be eating a demon. I mean, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's, that's what, what, what they believed, and so that's why they would have to go into all of these, uh, all these ritual things so that way they would be pure. And can I just, right even there, as we think about that, can I just interject some pastoral caution? You know, and you've probably heard all kinds of teaching. Stuff on TV, maybe you've read books, maybe you've encountered others who, under the name of Christ, have all these kind of superstitious beliefs about demons and certain types of demons or spirits of poverty or demonic attachments or demonic oppression and all that stuff. Really, things that you cannot find anywhere in the scriptures. Stuff just born out of uh, superstition from who knows where. But these superstitious teachings lead us really one place, far from God. Far from God as we become trapped in these beliefs and we live in fear or we set up some systems of religion that look biblical but really at its heart are pharisaical. So just be cautious. I've said this many times to many people, but there is one New Testament command uh, stated twice in 1 Peter 5 and James 4 on how believers interact with the demonic. We resist. We resist the devil and he will flee from you. You say no to sin. You say no to watching demonic things. You just say no and you avoid it. God's got it. We don't, we don't, we're not ignorant of it, but that's not our realm. We resist it. We resist it and he will flee from us. Otherwise, it can lead to all kinds of problems that we see here, a heart far, far from God. And we're heading towards the Lord, aren't we? That's our direction. We're heading towards the Lord here. And so come back to Mark 7 with me. Come back here. That was just kind of a pastoral timeout here, but verse, uh, or chapter 7, verse 5, now the Pharisees and the scribes, they just kind of put the question out there. You know, now you see the challenge here. We've got the explanation in the first four verses, and now chapter five, the big guns are here confronting Jesus, and they're like, why, Jesus? Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? What do you have to say for yourself? Give us an answer. And of course, classic Jesus here, he quotes the scripture as authority over traditions. Classic Jesus here in verse six, he really, now he like fires up the saw and he opens the chest right up. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 13, saying that your lips, they honor God, but your heart is nowhere near him. That's the definition of hypocrisy. To be a hypocrite, literally like to wear a mask, that on the outside, you appear to be very biblical. You, in our day, it's like you may go to church, you may read the Bible even, serve hard, you give much, but your heart doesn't come with he just exposes the heart of the Pharisees to say, your heart is far from me. 
About a year after the scene that we're in right now, a year later in Jesus' ministry, he would say this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. Listen here as I read it. He would say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, without which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whoa. That's harsh. That's harsh. But beloved, the way to diagnose a faraway heart is when traditions are greater than scripture. The way to diagnose a faraway heart, a heart that is far away from God, is when traditions all of a sudden are greater than the scripture. That's why Jesus comes and he's just like, hey, you have all these traditions. Here's what the Bible says. Here's the condition of your heart. But beloved, this isn't just a first century problem. This isn't just something that we can look back and be like, well, those Pharisees, they, they've obviously got a problem, but we've kind of got it going, right? We're pretty, we're, we're right. We've got it. Beloved, the American church has traditions too. We, 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 we're just bent that way. We're, we're just bent on, our, on, on doing things our way. And so within the American church, within the church here in New Braunfels, there are all kinds of traditions that exist today. And so I just come up with a few just to help point some of these things out for us that I think are kind of overarching uh, traditions that can become or that can really become greater than the scriptures if we are not tender and tethered to the word of God. One of today's tra- traditions is musical styles and forgetting John 4, 24 and what is the heart of worship. What is this explicit command that, that God is looking for? Those that worship him in spirit and in truth. And we can too easily become attached to a, a certain style of playing, a certain way that we sing, a, a traditional versus contemporary, and we can get uh, trapped in one of the, the, the forms of worship as the means of true, genuine, biblical worship and totally miss the heart totally miss the heart. Now, we can't just d- dismiss the preferences that we may or may have based on our, our upbringing and things, but the true heart of worship is worshiping in a manner that is both affected by God as we sing true things to and about God. And we can too easily make this a tradition that trumps what the scripture teaches. Another tradition is dress codes. Dress codes and the way that people come to church. Are we, are we very formal with suit and tie or do we pride ourselves in being a come as you are, dress however you want, we're so casual and laid back. Beloved, if, if, if that's our emphasis, then we've totally missed the heart of which God has called us first to worship him and also to interact with one another. We miss the, 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 the commands, the exhortations in Colossians 3 where we're to put on We're to put on ultimately love, love for God and love for one another. That's how when you get dressed to come to church, you need to pray no matter what your wardrobe looks like. You need to put on a heart that's ready to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Where you come to church, where you interact with the people around you in such a way that is is for their good, where you are ready to spur them on to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10 says. There's another tradition we, we celebrate, it's an ordinance. 
Um, a tradition can become the communion, the frequency in which we take communion versus the heart of passages like 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that we'll read after uh, the sermon here when we take communion. But we can get so bad and we're like, we have to do communion every single, every single week or to the opposite extreme. No, we can only do it on Easter Sunday or on Good Friday, or you know, the celebration of the, the Passover, or somewhere in between, or no, we do, we do it on the first Sunday of every month, or we, and, and beloved, I'm not necessarily uh, uh, detracting from the schedule that we take communion or those things, but they can become so traditional that we have to do it, that we lose the very heart of why God gave us this ordinance, to remind us to remind us of the great sacrifice that Christ <laughs> paid on our behalf to come before him, to remember his, his body beaten and his blood shed for us. We forget the heart of this, that it is a, a witness to an unbelieving world. It is a witness to, to uh, our children who ask, why do we do these things? We miss the gospel opportunity that comes in uh, communion for our own hearts and for those around us. We miss the heart of it that it should be a means to, for us to pause and be like, am I right with the Lord? Am I right with the people around me? We miss the heart and we get all bent out of shape about just how often we do it. There are other traditions in our methods of discipleship, the whole Sunday school versus small group debate our methods of discipleship, and we forget the heart of the Great Commission to baptize and teach uh, believers to make mature and multiply believers. And we get caught up like, no, we, are, we, we do it this way or we do it that way. Now we as a church, we are convict, convicted by and, and embrace a, a small group mentality. But not just because of the, the, you know, the popularity of our day of it. Not because it's just a current fad but because we believe in our context, it is the, uh, 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 an efficient and excellent vehicle that God has arranged for your growth in Christ, for you to be cared for and for you to care for others. But we can't miss the heart of it. Here's a final tradition. There's many out here, but you, you probably didn't come to hear about traditions today. You wanna hear from the word of God. Here's another one, drinking alcohol. We can't do it. Christians have to stay away from it. Or we flaunt our liberty and we drink all the time, and we miss the clear biblical command to not get drunk on wine. Do Christians have the freedom to drink alcohol? Yes. Do you have the responsibility to uh, look out for your brother and your sister? Yeah. Do you have a primary motivation to live for the glory of God? Yeah. And that is the heart of the matter. We have the liberty to drink, but we also have the liberty to say, no, we don't. But if we just make it a tradition and we make this a, a means or the, the standard of being righteous or being right with God, we totally miss the point of it and we elevate uh, something within uh, this world to a place that God never intended it to be. And we can elevate the traditions of man over and above the clear commands of scripture. And what a fine way, as he rebukes the Pharisees here, as he, uh, even as we allow it to penetrate our heart, we have a fine way of rejecting the commands of God for our own traditions. None of us are exempt from this. Even me, all of us. It's a systemic problem. 
It is a systemic problem that we have and that Jesus is pointing out here. But it's not just in regards to ritual purity, is it? He goes on, he says, here's one, that this is what they catch him on. And so Jesus, he responds and he, he gives them another example. He says, oh, well, since we're looking at this, here's a second witness. Here's another test result to prove the diagnosis. And he goes on to quote there in verse 10 from Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. He said, honor your father and mother. We know that one, right? That's in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, hear that, kids? That's like what you must do. That's what we all must do. And then it goes on. He, he quotes the positive and then a negative. But whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Kids, you hear that? You revile your mom or dad, right? You rebel against them. You tantrum. It's not going to go well for you. Just can we live on this side of the cross, so you uh. But it does come with a warning. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, that's what God said. That's what God said, but, but, but look at verse 11. But you say, here's what God says, but here's what you say. That's a scary place to be, y'all. That's a scary place to find yourself in. If it's a, here's what the Bible says, but here's what you say. You don't want to be in that spot. That's a place that I work hard all week to avoid. And I don't want to come up here and be like, well, God's word says this, and, but I'm saying it this way. That's a place that I want to work hard to avoid. You want me to work hard to avoid. You want to pray for me to avoid, and you want to pray that you yourself would avoid that way. You don't want to twist the scriptures. You don't want to elevate tradition over what the word of God says and what they had done. Also, he's saying, here's, here's another example. You've twisted the scriptures so that you wouldn't have to care for your parents. What's happening here is you, is you maybe are a little confused. You're like, who's Corbin? What does it mean given to God? What's, what's he talking about here? Well, what they had done in that day is they had uh, developed this Corbin vow. Corbin literally means given to God or dedicated to God that somebody could make that would trump all other uh, vows or all other responsibilities of the scriptures. And so what somebody could, what could do is they could say, I make a Corbin vow over all of my money and all of my resources. I'm going to give it to the Lord. It is all dedicated to him. And that sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, all my money, all my stuff, everything belongs to the Lord. But, but in their heart, it was so that when their parents got older, and needed to be cared for, they would tell their parents, hey, mom and dad, I'm sorry. I don't have, I don't have means to care for you. My house has been given to the Lord. I don't have any uh, reserves. I don't have any cash. It belongs to God. You're gonna have to fend for yourself. Y'all get the, like, the, how ludicrous that is, right? Like, like no, uh, okay, I see that you made a devotion to the Lord. That's good. It's good to give to the Lord, right? It's good to be generous in our giving. It's good to recognize that all that we have is given to the Lord. But he's saying, no, 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 no. You care for your, you care for your parents, and that honors me. You honor me by caring for your parents, don't, don't twist the scriptures. Don't make this vow so that you can get out of a very specific biblical obedience. You know, and some of us may find ourselves in that, and, you know, we may come to a place where we have to care for our aging parents, and that's good and right for us to do even today. 
You know, and there's specific things about that. Maybe it means them coming to live with you. Uh, maybe uh, them living with you is just too much even for you to care, and so you have to get help or uh, outside help for, the, for you know, your parents to uh, be cared for in a way in their um, old age. And so we can talk through specifics if you find yourself in that. How do you honor the Lord and also care for your parents? And you may find yourself in that. You know, a similar heart uh, condition in the same way would be like just to attach the same heart condition to a different, uh, uh, different season of life would be like uh, a husband and a dad who's up early in the morning reading his Bible, sitting over in the corner, uh, you know, praying, reading his Bible, all the while uh, mom is frantically getting the kids ready to get them breakfast and get them dressed and get them out the door to school or whatever is happening throughout the day, and she's over here doing her stuff, but dad's over here reading his Bible and praying. That's a noble thing, right? It's a noble thing. You should be reading his Bible, caring. But dads, husbands, you love your wife and you lead your kids by helping your wife with the kids and getting them out the door. Turn off the TV an hour earlier. Get up an hour earlier. Meet with God. Meet with God. Then come out of that with face glowing heart on fire for the Lord and let that spill over as you lead your kids and you uh, read the Bible with them and pray with them and help them get clothes on even if it's kind of uncomfortable and, what, and you don't know what and you don't have any sort of sense of matching and they go out the door with mismatched clothes. Believe me, I think your wife would love for you to care for them, for you to lead your kids and to love your wives. Don't, don't miss what he's saying here. That we love one another, we care for one another, and that honors God. But if we don't, we make void the word of God by your tradition. You see this? See, the way to diagnose a faraway heart is when tradition is greater than scripture. But the cause of a faraway heart is self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. It's trying to make ourselves right with God through our own effort. The self-righteous heart says, I do all the right things. I do all, I do all the right things. I, I'm trying to follow everything to, to, to the T. But beloved, with this self-righteousness, our effort never, never accomplishes what it wants, what we want it to do. Self-righteousness is like taking this dirty cup here. You've all probably been wondering why it's been sitting up here for a while, right? That's why I drank my coffee out of this morning. Actually did, but not, not when it looked like this. But self-righteousness is like coming to a cup like this. Doing everything we can to clean the outside. You know, taking these things, we read the Bible and, we, uh, and it like takes off a smudge. We come to church, you know, that like gets a big smudge off. We, we take communion and it's like trying to clean the cup out here. We got baptized, man, that's like a big, that, you know, that's like a big clean off here. And we work hard to try to clean the outside of the cup to give the appearance that everything is okay. And we work frantically and we, we do all the things. We're trying, to, we're trying to earn our way so that everyone who who's around us outside looks, hey, they've got it okay. They're, 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 they appear to be super spiritual. You ever feel like life is like that? Trying to earn it, trying to do everything on your own so everyone thinks that you're a nice spiritual Christian? It's the traditions of man. I can't even work. It's gonna take me forever to clean that thing off. But see, the, the, the cup, just like our heart, is still far from God. 
It's a faraway heart is what he's pointing out when the, when the call here, beloved, is to come near. It's to come near to the Lord, come near in repentance, to draw near and he will draw near to you, James 4 says. It is to, it, the call is to draw near through his word, to know the truth, the, the truth that will set you free, John 8, 32 says, to draw near by grace, grace that calls us into Christ's righteousness, Romans 5 says, and, and, and earns our justification where our sin is offloaded onto Christ, dealt with at the cross and his righteousness is unloaded back onto us, giving us the peace and hope and eternal life that we desire. See, the call to a faraway heart is to come near to Christ. But he goes on to deal with something else. See, first he's dealing with everyone, then he gives a detailed description or detailed teaching really to his disciples because he's saying not only is the first condition, not only is this heart far away, but it's also filthy. The second condition, uh, the second heart condition here is a filthy heart. So we've only been looking at the outside of the cup, haven't we? But what about the inside? Do you dare peer at what's inside here? But this teaching, as we come back to Mark 7 here, verse 14, this is one of those like mic drop moments in Jesus' teaching ministry. You know, the, the, the significance is maybe somewhat lost on us, uh, uh, Gentile, non-Jewish believers, but to a Jew in those days and, and even today to read a passage like this, it, it, it's mind-blowing. It's revolutionary. As they were so concerned with everything that was outside of them that would prevent them from drawing near to God. It, it was so confusing and maybe lost on them that, that the significance of this, that the early church would wrestle with the implications of, of things being uh, deemed unclean as food being, or, uh, food being declared clean now. They, they would wrestle with this for, for decades. Peter, who was at this, heard this teaching, would need a dream from the Lord in Acts 10 to help like reinforce this idea that all foods are now clean. Paul would have to teach multiple churches, Rome, Colossae come to mind, about that no food is clean. And we're not as believers, as followers of the Lord, bound by these Jewish Old Testament food laws anymore. The significance here is really even beyond just food rituals, but this idea that things outside of us are what defile us, are what affect us. So we hear things like this all the time, like I'm a product of my environment. The devil made me do it. The woman made me do it, right? Well, it's the industry standard. It's the industry norm. It's the way I was raised. And we're quick to look at everything else outside of us, but we're afraid to look on the inside. And we're definitely not gonna let anybody else look on the inside, are we? we we're, we're, that ain't gonna happen. The way to diagnose a filthy heart is to measure the lengths that we will go to cover up our sin to measure the lengths that we will go to, to hide what is the true condition of our cup. 
And that's really what the traditions of the Pharisees, why they were so bent on keeping them and following them because the Pharisees, they had, the, these laws had become like fences uh, around their heart to really conceal the sin so nobody could look into it, not to prevent sin from coming out per se, but to build a fence, a privacy fence, like probably 95% of us in this room have in our backyard so our neighbors can't see into what's going on in our backyards. We're pretty good at this. We're pretty good at this. So just think about it. Here's some ways that we cover our sin. Just kind of refer to this. We cover our sin by blaming others. Cover our sin by blaming others. It was my wife's fault. It was my sister's fault. It was my brother's fault. It was my friend's fault. It was my coworkers did it. We're, we're, we're quick to blame others who may have influence that are outside of us. As we talk about blaming, as we talk about this, you know, just it bears mentioning here is, you know, sometimes when we, when we blame others, this can also be like a, 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 a lie that is believed to not report things like abuse. Abuse is real. There are things where we are victims of outside uh, forces, of other people's sin upon us. And I don't want to minimize that and even saying that one of the ways that we conceal our own sin is by not recognizing the reality of abuse. This is a real thing. And if you find yourself in that, call two people, your pastor and the police. We'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. But anytime then when we blame others for minimal things, we're actually minimizing the reality and the power and the horrific nature of abuse. But we cover our sin by, by blaming others. We cover our sin by building fences, as I just said. Building fences. We build up traditions. We keep things. Uh, we, 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 we keep to ourselves. We avoid being around other believers. We believe that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm better off if I just do my own thing. To where this is at the extreme is when we work hard to uh, keep the different spheres of our life from crossing over where we build fences to make sure that our work people don't uh, interact with our church folks, which interact with our neighbors, which interact with our families, because uh, we can cover our sin that's happening over here if we just kind of build some fences around it. We also cover our sin by believing lies. By believing lies, and this really plays out, again, in two ways. One is by believing the spirit of the age. Things that we know from the scripture are unbiblical. We believe, we believe lies. We say we know that the scripture says this is wrong and so we just try to justify it because the spirit of the age, our culture says, no, it's okay. It's okay, that's, that's an antiquated belief. So we believe lies and we justify things that we know in our soul. We know as God's people, we choose to embrace the socially acceptable patterns of depravity that are celebrated in our day and age. We also believe lies here really by uh, deflecting sin. It shows up as maybe as when in times where we're confronted to say, hey, this is, when you did that, that uh, was sinned against me, that hurt me. And in order to, like, to, to keep it away, to not take it, we, we then all of a sudden just believe this lie, like I'm the worst person in the whole world. You think that I'm a bad dad. You think I'm, I'm the worst. Instead of just embracing, yeah, I messed up. I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? 
and we go to great lengths to cover over the sinful condition of our heart. See, the cause, the cause of a filthy heart is self-deception about our sin-filled condition. The cause of a filthy heart is self-deception about our sin-filled condition. See, everywhere we turn in our world, everywhere, all marketing messages, uh, media is trying to just cast upon us this thing. You do you. You deserve it. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Look inside. Find your true purpose. To which Jesus says, yes, please do look inside. Look inside and look at verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And we just don't like that, do we? I'm the first to admit it. I don't like verses like that. Nobody likes the doctrine of radical depravity. Nobody likes it. And since the beginning, Satan has been whispering the lie that we are basically good. That we come from a fundamental place of goodness. And since Genesis 3 and Adam's sin spreading to all humanity, God has been saying, no, no, you're not. From Genesis all the way to the end, characteristics like these 13. These, the first seven are really active sins that we engage in. The last six are, are attitudes of the heart. We are deceived, we're sensual in nature, envying. Envy literally being an evil eye. Having an evil eye towards others. Slander, pride, and all these things, they reside within the corrupted human heart. The inside of this cup, it's filthy. All those things, here it is, this is disgusting. It's unfit to drink from. And all this is a hopeless proposition when it's just left on its own. It's why we avoid it at all costs. It's why we run away from it. It's why we choose to believe, you know, the, the, the more palatable idea that we are basically good. See, beloved, like I just said, nobody likes the doctrine of radical depravity, but you come to love it and you experience the extravagant grace of God. Nobody likes doctrines like this, but you come to love it when you experience the extravagant grace of God. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he is being very confrontational, but we don't have to work feverishly to cover up our sin. He's saying, you this, these things are true about you, but you don't, you don't have to go overboard just to try to keep covering it up, of trying to wipe off the outside because we can't clean out the inside. But beloved, when, when you just see it and you uncover it, you will always find the grace of God towards you. Paul Tripp, he says it over and over in many ways, in many contexts, to, to a variety of people. He says that there is nothing about you that could be uncovered that the blood of Christ has not already covered. That if you were in Christ today, 
or if you're coming to Christ today, if you're looking like, this is me, I have a faraway heart, I have a filthy heart, what you will find as you cast yourself upon Christ is a grace and a love and a mercy and forgiveness unlike you have ever experienced before. So while these verses on one hand are an indictment against being a hypocritical Pharisee and a hard-hearted disciple, giving the judge all he needs for justice, they are also, on the other hand, a call to come and be cleansed. We can't clean the inside of the cup, but there is one who can. There is one who, from the beginning, has been in the business of cleansing, has been in the business of atonement, He's been washing out wickedness for a long time. Whatever you bring to the table, however your heart is manifested in this way, it's not too much for him. Your sin is great, but his mercy is He's been doing heart surgery. He's been extracting hearts of stone and implanting hearts of flesh for a long time. All made possible at the cross all made possible at the cross. He knew our condition. He knew how wicked you were. He knew how helpless you were. And he came anyway to rescue you. Who are we then to throw off the life preserver? He raised you up. Grab a hold of it. Let him rescue you. This is what we remember. This is, what, this is why we can come to love a passage like this and not be driven to despair. Because of the great mercy of God. And this is what we remember every time we take communion. It's how we're gonna respond here in just a few moments of coming and of, of, of being reminded in a very vivid way of the price that was paid so that way the condition of your heart would not damn you to hell. But he made a way that you could be right, declared right, to live a new life of hope and peace and joy and one day experience the hope and peace and unexplainable joy of paradise that we've sung about. And so as we bring it to a close, I just I want us to pray for a second. Our worship team's gonna come up in a moment and our ushers are gonna serve us communion. But as we prepare, we just need to do some business with the Lord, don't we? Maybe this morning you feel like your chest has been whoosh, And you need the tender hand of the heart doctor to work in your life. Would you bow your heads now? So we just pray.